Uh, we're going to read Genesis chapter 3, the whole of the chapter, arguably the most devastating chapter in the whole Bible. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to do the talk this morning. Okay, Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realised they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God said to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand, and take also from the tree of life, and eat, and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the Tree of Life. Amen. Okay, uh, let's pray and then uh, think about this familiar passage from Genesis and hopefully there'll be some things that come out today which are a little bit new and encouraging as well. Let us pray. Lord we thank you for this time we have this morning to think about your word. 
Lord, we pray that you'd help us to understand it and apply it in our lives. And Lord, we pray that you'd help us to grow uh, stronger in our faith in you, having uh, thought about this this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, earlier this week I had a chat with um, one of our local supermarket owners who I've been getting to know over the past five years and he had a bit of time on his hands and so he asked me what I've, what I've been up to and he seemed like he really wanted to know. And so I told him I was actually preparing a talk on the passage that was read to you earlier from Genesis chapter 3. And he was keen to get into uh, the God topic and to ask a number of blunt questions and uh, he was ready to hear me give him a few fairly straight answers as well. But what he really wanted to know is why there are problems in the world. Why are there so many problems? And he also wanted to know what God is doing about it. What's, going to do, what's God going to do about all these problems that we face? Well, there are problems in the world, aren't, aren't there? It doesn't take very much to look and see that that's the case. <coughs> Yesterday's newspaper had a, a headline, DIY terror, do-it-yourself terror, and there was an article about somebody who'd slaughtered a, a British soldier, um, and they even wanted to have their message to go global and viral, as they say. He, this particular chap came to a terrified witness, and he spoke to the person's iPhone with a camera on it. He came up to the witness and said, it's cool. I just want to talk to you. And then he started to explain the rationale for his act of violence. There's one big problem that's just obvious out there at the moment. The next thing that was uh, drew my attention to problems in the world was yesterday we had the world's biggest morning tea, didn't we? But do you remember what cause it was held in, uh, in view of? It was to, to raise money to help prevent or find a cure for Cancer, that's right. So there's, there's a, a wonderful morning tea and a good time together, but it's raising money to try and solve a particular problem in the world, one that touches so many lives. And yesterday there was another problem that we, uh, I encountered with a friend who I was taking him back to, to Sydney to get a ride on the train from Warhope to Sydney, and we got there and the poor gentleman who'd been up since 8 o'clock last night said, no, you're not going to be able to catch the train back to Sydney today because um, somebody has parked their car across the road of the railway crossing at King Creek and uh, they've planted their car there and the train's hit it and pushed them 200 metres and it's caught up underneath the cow catcher of the train. It's got to get cut off, the brake's fixed up, so we're going to have to bus you round to Taree and you can get to Sydney that way on a train. And So there was another example where you don't have to look very far and there's big problems in the world. There's such massive problems in people's lives that they even go to lengths like that to decide to take their own lives. But my friend who was the shop owner wanted to know why. Why do we live in this world where it is so hard, where there are so many difficulties and problems? Well, to get an answer to that question uh, from the Bible, we're going to wrestle with Genesis chapter 3 and try to get a handle on what God's word teaches us about the problems that are here. The context for chapter 3 is, of course, chapters 1 and 2, uh, and there we saw that God has made a wonderful world, a wonderful cosmos, 
And he's made Adam and Eve to bear his image. They're both his representatives in the world and they're made a bit different to us in that they are always holy and righteous at the very start. We see that they've got a royal task. Uh, we know it's a royal task because they're given jobs to do like a king. They are to have dominion. They are to rule over the earth and they are to subdue it. And we see from their role that's derived from God, that they're his representatives, uh, to have this royal kind of role, that also speaks to us from the very start of the Bible about what God is like. Because their royal image, to have dominion and to rule and subdue, is just a shadow of God's royalty. God is the one who is the big king over creation. Even the way he speaks and brings things into being is uh, like a, a, a royal figure. He says, let there be light. And at his word, things come into play. Let there be an expanse between the waters. God just says it and things happen. And so we see from the very beginning that the kingship of God is on view at the start of the Bible and we see that God has put Adam and Eve to be, in a sense, his little royals there representing him and he's placed them in a special place in his kingdom in Eden. Well, Adam is placed in Eden to do a number of things. He's there to uh, work it and to take care of it. That first word about working is the idea of serving in it. Jesus said he came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that word for serving is also the one that's used for people serving in God's temple later on in the life of Israel. Adam's there serving in God's good garden. He's in communion and fellowship with God and he's serving in the presence of God. He's like... Got, we saw a, a kingly role for Adam and Eve to start with, a royal role, but here in Eden, it's like he's got a type of priestly role to serve in the presence of God. We see something more of that uh, actually later in the Bible when we look at the stones that are there in Eden. Uh, there is a series of stones that are actually on the high priest's jacket. Uh, and these crop up in another part of the Bible, in Ezekiel, which talks about Eden. Uh, and so it gives us the impression that from the very start, Adam's a royal kind of figure, but he's also a priestly kind of figure. I could show you those things a bit later. It might take too long to look at some of those stones today in the talk. Either way, the other job that he has in Eden is not only to serve there, he's got a job to take care and to look out for it, to be watchful. And that's going to crop up a bit later because today in our passage we see who he needs to be on guard or on watch for. It's the serpent who we see come up in today's passage. But what we see before we get to chapter 3 is that God has graciously placed Adam and Eve in a special relationship to himself and he's put them in a special place to live as his people and he sets out the terms for them. He says, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so they've got a covenant responsibility to live by every word that proceeds from God. And at this point in the story in Genesis 1 and 2, it's a very good moment. The people are in harmony with God. They're in harmony with each other and they're ruling over the good creation that God's given them, like little royals. 
But the tone of the story starts to change. For the next thing we read is in chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. It's interesting, isn't it? We get this serpent and there's a number of questions we have about him. To start with, why does he speak? Do the other animals speak? The serpent speaks. That's a bit strange. And there's lots of questions that we have that might be unanswered. Where did he come from? Was there a prior fall of angels of whom he was one of them? Well, later parts of the Bible help us to understand something about this serpent. <clears throat> Other parts of the Bible help us to equate the serpent with Satan. This is what it says in Revelation 12 verse 9. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. In Romans chapter 16 verse 20 we read, <coughs> Pardon me. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And the serpent starts a kind of conversation to undermine the conditions God has established. This is Satan. Satan's an antagonist. He doesn't want the people to live how they've been created to live. And he begins his little plan by revising what God has to say. He says in verse 1, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? So he starts to revise what God's said in God's word. And did you notice that Eve, when she answers, she overshoots and she, she seems to even take a, maybe a point of legalism. She spoke about, uh, she said, God said we must not eat from any tree in the middle of the garden and we must not touch of it or we'll surely die. But did God ever say anything about touching the fruit? I mean, he said don't eat of it, but did he say anything about touching it? No, that's not ever spoken about. And so it seems that he's already thinking, oh, God's, God's maybe a bit stingy as well. Well, Satan continues by challenging God's word and insinuating that God doesn't have in mind what's best for his creatures. You'll not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now determining what was good and evil, determining what's right, is the prerogative of God alone. That's his responsibility, his job. And so here we see the touchstone of the temptation for Adam and Eve. It wasn't so much that the fruit was looking good and you know, they were ready to eat it. It's what it could actually achieve. They could see that they would become like God. They would start to be like the rule makers. And so by taking of this fruit, they're saying they know better than God. The temptation is to be equal with God to get on and to do their own thing without reference to God. If they could be like God, they would do that. And so Eve saw that it was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, the wisdom of Almighty God. She first had to touch it, didn't she, before she ate it? And perhaps seeing that she didn't die when she touched it, well, she follows up by eating it 
and giving some to Adam. And at this point in the story, Jesus is described as someone who's different in character to Adam and Eve. We're told that he was in very nature God, but didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. <clears throat> and so what we see here is the dream is turning sour. The high point, the lofty heights, from which they've started out living in God's great cosmos and creation, in fellowship with God and each other, ruling over the creation, we start to see that things really go from good to bad. There are consequences to their rebellion. In the first place, we see that their eyes are opened. In verse 22, we're told they've become like God, knowing good and evil. They're now ready to have a what might be called moral autonomy, to make up their own rules and make up their own way of doing what they think is right in a world where they think they can do that. But they won't always understand. Like God, they can do what they want to do at one level, but unlike God, they don't always know the consequences for their decisions. We saw this actually in uh, the reign of Solomon. In his prayer to uh, govern God's people, he asks for a heart of wisdom that he may discern between good and evil. That's what Solomon prays for. He knows he's got a big job and he prays that he might discern between good and evil and actually uh, do God's will. And when he resolves a dispute between two women as to who owns the baby uh, and there's a, a threat that the baby will be killed and one woman says, no, let's give the baby to her, uh, it's seen that w the wisdom of God was with Solomon to render justice. Adam and Eve have become now like God. They have a type of self-rule. But unlike God, they're not going to know the consequences of all their decisions. Furthermore, Adam and Eve have their eyes opened and they see and realise that they're naked. And it's clear from the fact that they cover themselves with fig leaves that, that they've lost something with each other in their relationship. There's trust that's broken and there's an experience of shame. And they don't have the same kind of level of connection with each other that they had prior to their sin. But whilst their relationship has started to fall apart, we see that that's actually the tip of the iceberg because there's a bigger problem, and that is their relationship with God, which is much more serious. Things have broken down in their relationship with God, and they're on the run from God. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. And that's a picture of people today, isn't it? People know something of God. They know enough about God to know that they, they don't want to know God. They don't want him to be king over their lives. They still want to be king or queen. And people run from God. There's a joke about the, uh, the modern atheists that they... That, um, say that God's not there, and number two, they hate him. <laughs> there is no God, and I hate him. <laughs> People today are still on the run from God like Adam and Eve, but they wear different kinds of fig leaves now, but they're still hiding from God. In the second place, we find that the consequences of rebellion are that God comes in judgment. The man and his wife heard the sound 
of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Verse 9, But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? <clears throat> Verse 10, He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Eat from? Some commentators point out that we, we don't maybe get the, the teeth of what's being said here, the, the guts of this translation when we see God going for an afternoon stroll and they hear the sound of the Lord. It's not simply the steps of footsteps that they can hear. Uh, one commentator says this passage must be played fortissimo, which if you know anything about music means it's got to be played loudly, like the end of one of Tchaikovsky's pieces. They really crank it up and play it loudly at the end. What Adam and Eve heard was frighteningly loud. It was the shattering thunder of God's advent in judgment. This is the advent of the Lord in his awesomely fearful judicial glory. This is terrifying stuff. It's a record of the beginnings of what is known later in the scriptures as the day of the Lord. So when there's references in the scripture about the day of the Lord coming, this is one of the first examples of that. That's what the sound of God is. It's the sound of God coming in judgment. And that's why they hid. <coughs> well, the man is called to account when God comes. Adam was there. We know that from verse 6 because we're told she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Earlier I spoke to us about chapter 2 verse 15 where it says he had the job of working the garden, serving in it, but also taking care of it. And the idea there is of being watchful. And Adam could have stepped in. He could have said, hold on a second here. None of that on my watch. And um, put a stop to this business of... Uh, taking the fruit and eating. And in this very response of God to speak to the man, we see something of God's created order. We see that God makes man, he makes woman as a, a helper. The, the word could also be translated ally. In armies, they sometimes find a nice ally to help them out. They're both equal under God because we know they're both made in the image of God, both of them. But we also see something of a created order. And at this point we see that God is not bringing the woman to account to start with. He's actually addressing the man first. And he's saying as far as God's concerned, the buck stops with him. And so what we've seen is a reversal in this, this pattern of what God's made. God's made the man, the woman as a helper suitable, to rule over the creation. But what we see here is the creation, in the form of the serpent, is leading the woman, and the woman is leading the man. But God addresses the man, not the woman. And then there's a classic human response called blame shifting that takes place in the next moment. Verse 12, the man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you've done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. But this decision to rebel against God is, a, is an attack both 
on God and also his good order. It's a failure to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and it's a rejection of what, what God has established. There's a type of covenant relationship that Adam and Eve have with God. Uh, they can continue to enjoy his mercy and favour in this environment but they have to do that according to God's terms that he establishes and they fail in their covenant. But God is still faithful to his covenant. God says, if you eat of it, you'll surely die. And that's what we're going to see in the next couple of verses about God following through pronouncing judgment. <coughs> God says that the serpent is doomed. First of all, he's doomed to eat dust. And his future will end badly, as there is a promise that although he'll strike the offspring of the woman's heel, ultimately his head will be crushed. And other parts of the Bible help us to understand about how this serpent crushing takes place. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, Jesus triumphs over the powers and authorities by means of the cross. In his crucifixion, there's a sense in which the uh, offspring of the woman is bruised, but through Jesus' defeat of sin and death, through his resurrection, Jesus ultimately becomes the one who defeats the devil's work. He is the serpent crusher. The woman is told that life outside of Eden will be hard for her, particularly in relation to childbearing and also in relation to men. It's hard to it hardly needs to be pointed out that there are many complications that can go with uh, having children. <clears throat> and we live in a pretty good country with lots of medical help, but even then things can be tricky. There's a topic called women's problems, and the joke at our place is women's problems are me, men. <laughs> and we see something of that in the next little part. Uh, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Uh, and this is uh, compared to a struggle or a battle as to who's going to dominate. Uh, in chapter 4, verse 7, the same idea of desire uh, and, and, and winning, over, winning the struggle comes up uh, in relation to sin. But in this part of the Bible, the woman's desire for her husband is not necessarily a sexual desire. It's probably more likely to be a desire to dominate that there's a power struggle in marriage as to who will dominate, the man or the woman. I don't know if you can ever relate to that, who's going to have the upper hand. On Saturday mornings where we go and what we do, uh, I sometimes find myself with a big list of things that are already coming at me and uh, yeah, it's a tricky little bargaining moment as to whether I'll dominate in those moments. But the unfortunate uh, situation that's been presented here is life outside of Eden is hard. The woman will want to dominate, but the, the history of the world has been a history of domestic violence. And uh, you've only got to look at... I was looking at a picture in the newspaper in the travel section at Vanuatu the other day. Was, there's a girl with a grass skirt and dancing, and there's a guy with big muscles. He's got much bigger biceps than her. And the reality is men have dominated, and they still do to this day. It's not a good thing, but that seems to be a reality. Domestic violence is a reality. And so her problems are 
in childbirth, with other women's problems and men. That's, that's a difficulty for women. Life outside of Eden for the man is also complicated and painful, where once upon a time work was actually something rich, fulfilling and a wonderful act of service in the presence of God, its character has now changed. The ground will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will live and you will eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground. It's not just in agriculture that work is hard. There's all manner of boredom that can go with work. There's all manner of workplace injuries that can take place. Some bosses are, are pigs. They're, some of them are dreadful and they're, they're rude to their, their, their staff. And some employees aren't uh, particularly committed to functioning. They, they might be lazy. Uh, people in the workforce sue each other. I was talking to a, a gynaecologist one time about uh, what work I was doing at the time I was a teacher. He said, oh, well, there's probably a few law, lawsuits in that sort of world. They statistically get sued three times in a career. It doesn't matter, it seems, what work you do. There's, there's always difficulties in it. In the building industry, my dad, when he comes across a problem, he says, ah, there's always something. And uh, it's just the character of work, isn't it? That there's always, things don't always work out. And work is hard. And it's interesting to note that these uh, curses, if you like, although they're sort of generally uh, meeting the people where they're at, they still overlap a bit because men still have problems uh, in relationships. Uh, not in childbirth, but in, in relationships they do. Uh, and women still have problems uh, in work. And the sobering message at the end of all this is, uh, after a hard life out in the world outside of Eden, uh, people are eventually overcome by the creation in any case. We picked that up in verse 19. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. People are eventually struggling against the environment and then eventually they're overcome anyway. Well, the picture that we're given in uh, this part of the Bible is that life outside of Eden is hard, and that's the norm. Genesis gives us fairly straight talk about the nature of those difficulties. It doesn't sugarcoat us with what we can expect of our lives and our situation. And so when we feel the weight and the pain of the difficulties of life, it should remind us to remember this part of God's word. But it should also remind us of God's willingness to deal with uh, this difficult age and give us hope of a different kind of age to come. We see something of God's justice tempered with mercy in verse 21 where he dignifies the man and the woman. He doesn't leave them in their fig leaves. But we're told the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And so God acknowledges their dignity and has a type of mercy to provide for them. But ultimately, they still remain exiled out of Eden. Verse 23, So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. Verse 24, after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim 
which is a fierce creature, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Well, it's interesting, isn't it, to see the patterns in that story and to, to reflect on uh, our lives as well. Before we reflect on our lives, I do want to draw your attention to some patterns in the life of Israel as well. Did you notice that Adam was taken and he was formed outside of Eden and then he was placed in Eden? And Israel, it was actually formed as a big nation in Egypt. That's where they grew to be a big nation. And God took them to himself at Mount Sinai and then placed them in the promised land. Adam and Eve rebelled against God and they were exiled from Eden. And Israel, who were also God's royal priests, called to be, they rebelled against God as well, not only in the golden calf, but when they were in the land and they were exiled from from the promised land. This bit about the cherubim there with the, with the swords interesting. When Israel comes out of Egypt to Mount Sinai, receives the law and then get ready to go in and take the land, Joshua leads them to take them in. Moses stays behind. And when Joshua gets to the threshold of the land, they meet an angel of the army of the lords of hosts standing there with a sword in his hand. And it's kind of this picture of these people, these Israelites, they're like heading back into a kind of Eden-like situation. But what we know of the Bible is that that's still only a shadow or a, a visual aid, if you like, of the, the true heaven or the true renewed creation that we're looking forward to in the end. Well, how does Adam and Eve's story fit with our story? Well, of course we weren't the ones there who uh, took the fruit. It was a long time ago. And secondly, we're a little bit different to Adam and Eve. Uh, it's our nature, it seems, to sin. We aren't born in all holiness and righteousness in the way that they were. But by our failure to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, and in our willingness to rebel against God's will and our desire to indulge in our sinful nature, and to do our own thing, <clears throat> we show that we've got a solidarity, don't we? We have a solidarity with Adam and Eve in their rebellion. And so we also live as fallen people uh, and we die because we are sinners as well. But there is light at the end of the tunnel. And we saw that in Romans chapter 16, verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The idea is that through the work of Christ to deal with the sin of the world, uh, God's people, God's church, will ultimately triumph over the serpent. And so the future that we look forward to on account of God's work in sending Jesus to deal with our sin, if we rely on his work, we can enjoy not just a, a world of struggle, but a hope of life with God forever. We see something of that in Revelation chapter 22, verse 3. We're told, in that time, no longer will there be any curse. That's what we've been looking at today. There'll no longer be any curse. Verse 6, the Lord will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. And it seems the situation at the end is much better because at the end we are sons of God. We are reigning with Christ. And it'll be forever and ever. There won't be scope for sin anymore, unlike, unlike there was in the first uh, part of the whole story. Well, let us thank God that um, 
he has given us hope, even in a world which is difficult, and we can pray that he'll help us to persevere as his people with our trust in Jesus the Serpent Crusher. Let us pray. Lord God, we do thank you for this um, passage this morning, which reminds us of um, your goodness in creating uh, humanity to live as your representatives in your image, uh, to enjoy ruling over the world under your hand and to serve in your presence. And Lord God, we this morning acknowledge that um, we don't live by every word that comes from you. We don't carry out uh, the spirit of your law as we ought to. We fail in many ways. And we know that we will die because we are rebels and sinners as well. But Lord, we give you thanks uh, that you've acted a long time ago, even before we were born, to deal with our sin, to deal with uh, the devil and his temptations, to deal with sin and death. And we thank you that Jesus comes, who, who is the faithful one, that he, uh, he doesn't grasp at equality with you, but that he took the nature of a servant and therefore was exalted. We thank you for Jesus and his, what, he, what he's done on our behalf. We thank you that he's achieved it and that we're in Christ and receive his benefits. So we thank you for his salvation from sin and we ask you to help us to persevere faithfully as your people. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.